Well, hello there. I'm Lauren. We're not actually talking about lake monsters, but we kind of are. Today, we're talking about cyanobacteria, aka blue-green algae, which is found in fresh and brackish bodies of water across the world and is deadly to animals. I'm here with Angela and Val, and we are second-year veterinary students at Colorado State Veterinary School, coming to you on another episode of VetCast. Welcome to VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University focused on the impacts of climate change on animal health. Hello, I'm Angela. In this episode, we are going to discuss the history of and the clinical implications this deadly toxin has on animals. I am going to review the background of blue-green algae and various public misconceptions. I'm Val. We want to dive a little deeper into this topic and discuss the ways that landscapes are changing and how more humans and pets are coming into contact with this deadly toxin. We'll start off spicy with a big fact up front. Blue-green algae isn't a true algae. It's actually cyanobacteria that produce harmful toxins, which have devastating effects uh, on the body upon exposure. So to get the quick and dirty on blue-green algae, we hit up our very own toxicology professor here at CSU, Dr. Dan Gustafson. So what is blue-green algae? So blue-green algae is um, cyanobacteria that um, kind of grow usually in water or in damp areas. Um, They can be um, either uh, anaerobic or slightly aerobic. Um, We know them as kind of that kind of uh, filmy-looking algae that that forms on the top of lakes that kind of looks almost greasy, um, or on rocks it's kind of slimy, and those are cyanobacteria. Okay. And how does it make animals sick? So cyanobacterium have um, toxins, and there, there's really two classes of toxins that are in cyanobacteria. Um, there are uh, the ones that are that are liver toxic, and those are uh, generally um, work by blocking uh, phosphatases, serine phosphatases in the liver, and are directly cytotoxic. And so, um, and this is usually seen in dogs, and it's usually seen late in the summer. What will happen, especially with winds? You'll get the, the kind of pushing of the, the cyanobacteria on near the shore, and it'll it'll gather. And dogs that either swim in there or go drink, if they get it on their on their fur, they'll lick it off in grooming. Or if they go and drink when, in this kind of water that looks kind of murky or has that kind of oily cyanobacteria sheen, they can get exposed to it, um, and that'll cause uh, liver toxicity. Um, there are other forms that are neurotoxic, and uh, the neurotoxicity is associated with actually inhibiting acetylcholinesterase uh, and um, some other direct effects on firing of the synapse. So these are I mean, the kind of overall neurotoxicity. Anatoxin AS is the major one that causes that. Um, the ones that cause liver toxicity are uh, microcystin and nodularin are the toxins. Um, so it really depends on the species of cyanobacteria. Um, and generally for what we we try to do is we try to tell people with dogs, especially late in the summer or, or if they see any any uh, algae or bacteria that that's on the the kind of rim of the the lake or water that they're at. Just don't let the dog drink or go swimming in there because that you know. So the best way is to limit exposure because um, a lot of times the toxicity that you see is irreversible, especially if it's liver toxicity, um, and dogs can can absolutely die from that. In fact, we had a case 
that was, was actually on Nine News about uh, three years ago here in Colorado happened up at Horse Tooth. A dog got into one of the bays, and there were, seemed to be, it was late in the summer, and there was concentrated cyanobacteria, and they got into it, and they died of liver failure. So um, it does happen. You know, my advice is always people that have dogs that are outdoors like to do a lot of hiking um, to uh, certainly educate them on that and to make sure if the dog's going to be drinking water from natural sources that it's fast-moving and, you know, better from a stream than from a, a slow-moving lake where you have the accumulation of this stuff. Cyanobacteria are found throughout the globe in lakes, ponds, rivers, and brackish waters, including both fresh and saltwater environments. They are an ancient group of prokaryotic organisms that are found in environments as diverse as Antarctic soils and volcanic hot springs, often where no other vegetation can exist. Although these organisms' impressive success across such varied conditions is remarkable, it can also be a cause for great concern. Botanists have originally considered the cyanobacteria as blue-green algae, which we are most familiar with because of its phycocyanin, which is a special pigment that gives many species a slightly blue-green appearance. The blue pigments enable cyanobacteria to use a wider light spectrum than terrestrial land plants. When conditions are optimal for cyanobacteria replication and growth, the population of cyanobacteria in a water body can rapidly build up or bloom. The onset of bloom formation is determined by a combination of factors including concentration of nutrients, generally warm temperatures, high light density, and stable water and air conditions. According to the CDC, you might or might not be able to see cyanobacteria blooms. They sometimes stay below the water surface and sometimes they float to the surface. Some cyanobacteria blooms can look like foam, scum, or mats and form a mass known as algal scum. The blooms can be blue, bright green, brown, or even red. Blooms sometimes look like paint floating on water surface. As cyanobacteria in a bloom die, the water may have a rotten smell similar to rotting plants. One can assume correctly that this will affect the taste, odor, and of course toxicity levels of water supplies. Bloom-forming cyanobacteria can produce a wide range of toxic substances known as cyanotoxins. Cyanotoxins are chemically diverse and are usually either neurotoxic or hepatotoxic in pathology, but we'll get more into this later on in the segment. So we learned from what Dr. Gustafsson told us in veterinary school, but your average pet owner is likely not so savvy to these details. I have collected opinions on what people think blue-green algae is and how it affects the environment, animals, and people. I've asked various individuals of various ages, educational backgrounds, and of differing hometowns. I've gathered that blue-green algae is phytoplankton at the top of the ocean that photosynthesizes and is responsible for oxygen in our atmosphere, and it helps the ecosystem, and filter-feeding whales such as sperm whales eat this. I've also gathered that blue-green algae is found in the air and not good for humans to breathe in. It is harmful to the environment, but its purpose is to control population. And if it's poisonous to kill humans, it can also kill plants and animals around it, which is a positive thing if there are species that are overgrowing. Someone had also mentioned they probably heard of it before, but they have no knowledge of it currently. They thought that algae is generally harmful and forms blooms, but unsure if blue-green algae specifically also does this. But they did point out that it is harmful to both people and animals. I've also been told that it grows in areas of stagnation, such as large puddles, and that it grows near bacteria in the water and may affect feral animals that consume the water. And the last opinion I wanted to pull in was that blue-green algae is pond scum and known as spirulina. It is a superfood and has been in the health food market for a while. I was quite intrigued that the various individuals I have asked all had rather different ideas and understandings of blue-green algae, 
But to add to the unfortunate lack of knowledge on this crucial toxic organism, as someone who was born and raised in Hawaii, I too have never heard of blue-green algae until I moved to the mainland, specifically here in Colorado. My roommate and I took a drive up to Horsetooth where she pointed out a body of water to me. She wanted to make it clear that I shouldn't take our dogs there since there is a possibility that there could be blue-green algae bloom there, to which I was not familiar with. Blue-green algae, hmm, what is that? Blue-green algae wasn't quite brought to Hawaii's attention until in 2019, our local news station, KHON2 News, reported that deadly algae raises concerns for Hawaii dog owners. Locals grew concerned since they were hearing that dogs are dying on the mainland from toxic algae after jumping in freshwater ponds and lakes. The State Department of Health says there has been no reports of the algae being in Hawaii, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen there. There are also other risks that come with dogs jumping in ponds and lakes, but that is an entirely different discussion for an entirely different time. It appears that the blue-green algae has a non-specific geographical distribution. These algal blooms thrive off of nutrient pollution, which is a major cause of cyanobacteria blooms. Nutrient over-enrichment of waters by urban, agricultural, and industrial development has promoted the growth of cyanobacteria. These warm, slow-moving waters are rich with fertilizer, runoff, or septic tank overflows, more specifically loaded with phosphorus and nitrogen, which are essential to the growth and survival of cyanobacteria. The blooms can form at any time, but most often form in the late summer or early fall. Due to limited research and resources on blue-green algae, I can only infer that Hawaii has been safe from these deadly blooms because of the state's equatorial geographic location, introduction has not occurred, thank goodness, and or because Hawaii is considered one of the least polluted states, which likely decreases the amount of nutrient pollution. Overall, because there has not been much research conducted on this species and unfortunate public ignorance, our environment and animal safety begs for more outreach and education on blue-green algae. And now that we discussed the lack of awareness on this problematic species, let's dive into toxicity mechanisms. The mechanisms of toxicity for cyanotoxins are very diverse, including toxic effects on the liver, nervous system, kidneys, GI tract, respiratory tract, and skin. Clinical signs in dogs can include seizures, vomiting, lethargy, weakness, inappetence, bruising, and sadly the majority of patients do not survive, as there is no specific antidote or treatment for cyanobacteria toxicity. As acute hepatotoxicity occurs so quickly, upon necropsy, the most obvious finding is a large, friable liver that is very dark red in color, with histopaths showing hepatocyte dissociation, degeneration, and necrosis. So nothing good. And often, as this toxicity can be fatal so quickly, this is the first sign the veterinarians have of a confirmed diagnosis. However, as soon as cyanobacteria toxicity is suspected, supportive care is started. Most times, owners will alert veterinary staff that the dog was swimming in or walking near a lake or pond. The toxin is so potent that an animal even licking its paws after wetting its feet in a contaminated body of water can lead to severe toxicity. The toxin, however, cannot cross the skin to cause toxicity. It must be ingested or inhaled. But even if the dog is just swimming in the water, the chances that dog drinks some of the water or will then groom themselves after getting out are so high that any dog known to have come into any form of contact with cyanobacteria should seek immediate veterinary attention. Once the veterinarian suspects blue-green algae toxicity, they will unfortunately alert the owners that the outcome is generally poor. However, in one case seen at Kansas State University's Veterinary Health Center in 2013, a dog did survive. This dog presented 24 hours after likely ingestion, which is kind of a long time. 
and was immediately placed on supportive care that included things like fluids, blood transfusions, vitamin K and B, and adenosylmethionine. The owner actually did have a sample of this water, which is generally not the case. So the team was able to test the water and confirm their diagnosis of cyanobacteria poisoning. This is a fascinating case. As I said, this dog actually did survive. So this dog was hospitalized over a course of five days. And I'm going to give just a quick breakdown of this specific case to show everyone how serious of an illness this is and how amazing it was that this dog pulled through. Well, at the hospital, the case was very touch and go. On day one, the dog was stable, but severely ill, vomiting, uncoordinated, you know, really worrying to the staff. On day two, the clinicians repeated some tests such as coagulation profiles to see if the dog's blood was clotting appropriately. And while there had been some improvement from the day before, it still showed clotting times that were way too long. Petechia or pools of blood in the skin developed on the dog's ears and abdomen. They gave two more fresh frozen plasma transfusions and continued the supportive care of sodium chloride fluid supplemented with dextrose, vitamin B, and that adenosylmethionine. So on the third day, the dog became more lethargic, had pale mucous membranes, vomiting again. Now he had a distended abdomen and there was more bruising or that petechia noted on the ears. Now there was more on the limbs and the abdomen. The dog was markedly anemic and showed a decrease in platelets. The clotting times were still way too high. So this was very scary for the clinicians as they thought they were going to lose this patient at this time after putting in you know, days of hard work, time, and the owners were really hoping that the dog would pull through at this point. So in a bit of a last-ditch effort, the team transfused a whole blood this time. And luckily, the next day, so this is day four, the patient seemed brighter with neither progression of that bruising, petechia, or abdominal distension. Then on day five, the dog was eating on its own, it wasn't vomiting anymore, and they were able to discharge it remarkably. Then after a few weeks of monitoring the blood work, they found that all of the clotting factors went back to normal levels and all of its liver enzymes actually returned to normal as well. As this is a truly remarkable case, it's sadly not a common one. So to find out a little bit more about clinical presentations, we spoke with a resident uh, doctor here at Colorado State University's Veterinary Teaching Hospital, who's worked here in Fort Collins, as well as in Denver over the past few years. And we wanted to see what she as a clinician had seen in terms of cyanobacteria. So I will turn it over to Dr. Tucker. My name is Claire Tucker, and I'm a first-year emergency and critical care resident at Colorado State University. I've seen a few cases of blue-green algae in practice, mostly during my internship at VCA Alameda East in Denver. It's a very challenging toxicity because it can happen so quickly. Um, the dog can just be out on a walk doing its normal stuff and then drink some water, and the signs of toxicity often are visible within just an hour or so. It's also difficult because there are no tests to, to confirm a for sure anti-mortem diagnosis. We can do things like induce emesis or vomiting and sometimes see blue-green algae in the vomitus. But the only way to know for sure is to confirm that the body of water that the dog drank out of has toxic blue-green algae. There's dozens of species of blue-green algae. Not all of them are toxic. And so it's tricky because owners often will self-diagnose and see that their, their dog drink algae uh, in the water, but it may not be toxic and it may not be severely toxic. 
the cases that I have seen, most have gone well. Um, usually the owners are able to get the dog in quickly. We induce emesis and then give medications that bind the toxin as it circulates around the body. But I can think of at least two where the dog did drink out of confirmed blue-green algae water. And in both cases, uh, they euthanized the dog at the end of the case. One dog was euthanized for severe neurotoxicity, um, so basically severe muscle tremors, paralysis, um, rigidity after a while. The other was euthanized after several days in the hospital because of severe liver failure. Several locations have been shown to have blue-green algae over the last several years. The most worrisome ones are places like Sloan's Lake in Denver, which is a very common place for dog walkers. The other one is Millivec Lake, just southeast of Longmont, um, where it's also very common to see dog walkers out there. I've also seen a few from apartment complexes, so smaller bodies of water, um, but those are a little bit less common. I don't know why we don't see as many cases in Fort Collins compared to Denver. It may be that there's not as much uh, housing that's close together, so we see less of the apartment complex lakes we also don't have as many large standing lakes around Fort Collins, although we do in, in Longmont and Loveland. Um, so perhaps those are just different watersheds, different water quality, things like that. The one thing I hope I can pass on to owners in terms of the safety of their dogs and blue-green algae is that they should avoid letting their dogs drink out of any algal-covered water bodies. So anywhere there's algae, they should not let their dogs swim, drink, do anything like that, and have a preference towards uh, moving water like rivers and streams. We don't know which ones are toxic just by looking at them, and it takes a lot of testing to decide which ones are toxic. So it's just a better rule of thumb to have a no way we're not going in algal-covered water instead of trying to parse out which one is toxic and which one isn't. A very interesting note that Dr. Tucker touched on is that urbanization is actually causing an increase in incidents due to a few causes. One is simply that there are many small standing bodies of water in cities that are not checked frequently enough. They're either on private property or for whatever reason, the municipal works department of that city or county has not been made aware of an open water source. Often these can be found as backyard or apartment complex ponds. Second, there's often no oversight to what chemicals are dumped into these ponds, or apartment building complexes are slacking on making sure these standing bodies of water are kept clean. For example, drains that are emptying water before they've been treated, pet waste not being cleaned up and then running off into these ponds, increasing nitrogen levels, and or chemicals simply being dumped by residents into areas where they shouldn't be. Val is going to give us more of a breakdown on what we can do to prevent these deadly blooms. According to the EPA, climate change does contribute to algal bloom prevalence due to warming of waters and changes in salinity and rainfall, but as Lauren mentioned, it's not the only thing keeping toxic algae on the rise. There are a few things you can do to push the so-called needle in the right direction for our water quality. So some action items, keep animal waste, lawn fertilizers, and de-icers out of waterways. I think this is particularly important for animal agriculture. If you have um, cattle, horses, etc., out near pond, we're looking at you. Keep your eye out for local bulletins by state or county. Ponds usually get closed off when this happens and you'll see it on the local news. Um, if you're a pet owner and you want to avoid the horrors of blue-green algae toxicity in your animal, here's how to identify a sketchy looking body of water. 
According to the CDC, blooms can occur in fresh salt and brackish water. That's a mix of salt and fresh water. This can look like foam, scum, mats, or paint on the surface of the water. And a bloom can change the color of the water to green, blue, brown, red, or another color. So basically, if it doesn't look quite right, don't take your chances. Um, if your pet starts showing signs of blue-green algae toxicity after coming into contact um, from swimming or drinking at a lake or pond, bring he or she to your nearest emergency vet hospital and call the ASPCA Poison Control Hotline, which can be found in the episode details below. Toxicosis is acute and likely fatal, so immediate supportive care from a vet is crucial as soon as possible. Thanks for listening to another episode of VetCast. By following the steps of bowel disgust and helping to spread the word about this deadly toxin, together we can all prevent cyanobacteria from becoming the deadliest lake monster of the 21st century. There it is. In the water. Get back. Thanks for joining us on VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University. To find more resources about this topic and details about each episode, check out the show notes. Thanks and see you next time on VetCast. VetCast.